welcome back to Capital Crosstalk, where we'll be interviewing experts, activists, and more on the latest news. For this episode, we'll be diving into climate policy in the Biden era. Later, we'll speak with Professor Frank Masano, a partner for Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group, who specializes in the energy and environmental sectors. But first, let's talk with Jeremy Whisker, a senior here at GW and co-founder of Sunrise GW, an activist organization dedicated to advocating for political action on climate change and fighting the climate crisis. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So without further ado, let's get right into the questions. So for some people here at GW who might not know what the Sunrise Movement is all about, just give us a brief history of like what Sunrise is all about and what got you into it and made you found a chapter here at GW. Sure. So the Sunrise Movement is a movement of young people across the country uh, fighting for the Green New Deal, which we believe is the, the only solution to the climate crisis that, that meets it at the scale that science and justice demand. And for me, I got involved back in Sunrise in uh, December of 2018, after Sunrise had a very um, high-profile sit-in in Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office with, uh, with newly elected um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to demand that the House uh, create a select committee um, on the Green New Deal to, to, write, to write the Green New Deal so that when, you know, hopefully when Democrats took control of the Senate and won back the presidency in, in 2020, we would be ready to go with, with a full plan. And you know, what got me involved was, was really seeing and being inspired by, by that action uh, and um, Sunrise really presenting presenting a solution to the climate crisis, you know that wasn't you know just talking about carbon taxes and things that we have to lose in this crisis, but talking about a better society that we can we can build and what we can gain from taking action in a way that that protects all people that that makes sure that communities that are um, in transition from extractive industries from the fossil fuel industry are protected. That frontline communities, communities of color that have uh, that are facing the worst impacts of the climate crisis, are protected. Um, so that that's what that's what inspired me to get involved. And then I met another GW student who also got involved around a similar time, and we thought that it was really important to bring what Sunrise Movement was doing to GW um, because. Uh, the vision really speaks to people our age and, and to college students in particular. Uh, and, and that there was a lot that GW needs, needed to do as an institution um, to, to better uh, fight the climate crisis. Um, like, like, for example, it's continued investments in the, in the fossil fuel industry at the time. Uh, we, we wanted to make sure that we could, we could mobilize people around that on-campus issue and then also then keep that engaged group and, and put their efforts towards the national movement for, for federal climate legislation. Yeah, so you brought up towards the end there some of GW's involvement uh, with the fossil fuel industry, both through investments and through funding of uh, certain think tanks and other organizations who may advocate for the use of fossil fuels. Obviously, that's what kind of bumped Sunrise into the uh, front page of GW News for a little while at the end of uh, fall 
last year uh, heading into spring. So what do you think uh, GW needs to do to kind of combat climate change? And have they made any progress at all uh, since you guys kind of brought that to the forefront of the community last year? Yeah, so when we when we came onto campus, um, the GW Fossil Free had been working uh, uh, to get GW divested from fossil fuels for the past eight years. And they, you know, they had been through multiple you know, rounds of students who had graduated and moved on. And uh, there, we lost a bit of a lot of momentum. Um, but, you know, with new leadership at, in the administration and at the Board of Trustees, um, along with a growing climate movement around the country of young people, we saw an opportunity to mobilize people on campus and really reignite this fight. So through our work and through, you know, through tons of petitioning and protests and uh, strategic media interventions, giving GW bad press uh, for what they were doing and things like that, we were really able to mobilize a huge section of the campus around this issue. And the pressure worked. Um, within just a couple months of this reignited movement, we were able uh, to get the Board of Trustees to finally act. They created a task force on environmental, social, and governance responsibility, which Sunrise, a member from Sunrise UWME, I, I was then I was able to be on that task force and, and represent student interests. And and through that through that work and continued pressure from the outside as well, we were in a span of just six months, able to get GW to commit to fully divesting from fossil fuels and its endowment, um, move up their target for campus carbon neutrality from 2040 to 2030, um, get a commitment for GW to reverse its entire 200-year carbon footprint, uh, commit to a center or, you know, like you said, a think tank, um, on campus that focuses on sustainability or climate issues uh, and a bunch of other um, on-campus sustainability measures like we recently saw another product of that, uh, GW committing to ending uh, their use of single-use plastics. And, and all that together has put GW really at, at the forefront um, for universities on, on climate action. They were falling behind, but with student pressure, we were able to get them right there. That said, there's still work to be done. Um, Sunrise GW in particular right now is focusing on, um, on a, a think tank that is within GW called the Regulatory Studies Center. And the Regulatory Studies Center, a, a report from a consumer advocacy group, Public Citizen, showed in 2019 uh, that 96% of the public comments that the Regulatory Studies Center submits to uh, federal agencies advocate for deregulation. And they have a particular focus on deregulation of the fossil fuel industry. And that's a major concern to us. But you know, we, we are completely good and fine with people disagreeing with us on matters of policy, although you know, fighting for the deregulation of the fossil fuel industry is particularly damaging to our planet in, the, in, this, in this time. Uh, but there are also like very serious issues around um, the platforming of, of climate deniers and other anti-science figures at the center that we have tried to, uh, to bring to light. Um, like for example, 
uh, when the Trump administration was considering rolling back some of the Obama era uh, fossil fuel industry regulations. Um, the Regulatory Study Center brought in from outside of GW, a very prominent UK climate denier to write a public comment on GW letterhead advocating for the rollback of these fossil fuel industry regulations. And, and we see that as a real problem. And it's not the, he's not the only one um, that the Regulatory Study Center has given a platform to. Um, for, uh, one other example that I'll give really quick uh, is another, another public comment for the Regulatory Study Center was written by a guy named Tony Cox who has, for his, his career, is essentially um, advocating uh, to the federal government to, to undermine um, science that, that basically uh, makes it more difficult for the companies that, that are paying him uh, to, to put out their product. Um, so for example, he was getting paid by the American Chemistry Council to argue that the science that, connect, that shows that silica causes silicosis is actually not definitive and it is wrong. And, you know, silica, I mean, it's literally named for it, right? So that the, the George W. Bush administration's uh, FDA commissioner um, actually, you know, threw out some of his testimony uh, because it was deemed so not credible uh, and he was found to like have misstated research in the past and, and, and things like that. So if he's not credible for even the Bush administration's uh, government, then how is he credible enough to be using GW's name? So we're trying to bring those issues to light. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I know uh, before we started this interview that you were talking about the different hubs of Sunrise GW at different camp or Sunrise, the Sunrise movement across different college campuses. Uh, can you speak a little bit about what uh, Sunrise Movement chapters are doing across the country and if there's been any uh, major headway on other campuses across the United States that GW could use as a model moving forward? Yeah, so there are around 500 active hubs of the Sunrise Movement around the country, which is amazing considering that when I joined back in 2018, there were just a couple dozen. So it really shows like how much of how much the Green New Deal and the climate crisis is really on, at, the, at the top of mind for people our age around the country. Um, and there are other college hubs too, uh, and some of them have focused on things like fossil fuel divestment and been successful. Um, but now there's really a pivot towards, now that the Democrats control, uh, the, control Congress and the presidency, we are moving our focus to the fight for the Green New Deal at, at the federal level, because now there's a real opportunity to get something done. Um, so there's that fight, and then there's also all sorts of different local fights around the country to get you know state and municipal level uh, legislation through, uh, because we really need action at all levels of government in, in order to, to meet this crisis at the scale that it demands. Now, moving on from a more local level in college campuses to that national level you were speaking of, obviously, Biden made it abundantly clear on his first day in office that uh, climate change was at the kind of forefront of his uh, campaign and would be one of the priorities for his presidency. So what do you and Sunrise make of these day one executive orders regarding climate change with the pipelines and rejoining the Paris Agreement? 
Uh, do you like these moves? Not? Do you not think it's enough? Uh, just kind of what are your thoughts on this? It's been really encouraging so far um, with his slew of executive orders at the beginning in particular. Um, I would highlight a few uh, that we've been particularly excited about. First, um, he, he, he issued an executive order that stated that 40% of investments uh, should be going to frontline communities uh, in the climate crisis. We think that is really important. That's something that we've explicitly been pushing for for a long time. And we saw that that is a direct result of the organizing that groups like Sunrise have done because it wasn't in his plan uh, his climate plan during the presidential primary. It got added after uh, the the Biden-Bernie climate policy task force where Sunrise Movement's executive director was on that task force and advocated for that specific policy. So we're seeing direct results from, from our work, which is really exciting. And then I'd also highlight uh, the his axing of the Keystone XL pipeline. That's a fight that's been led for a really long time by indigenous peoples on the front lines um, because pipelines not only are harming both, you know, our local local environments uh, and also, you know, contribute significantly. It's a climate change, um, but, you know, it's also, there are also like violations of, of tribes, um, treaties and, and land and infringing, you know, potentially hurting their water supply and things like that. So it's really encouraging to see President Biden responding directly to the, the concerns and, and and organizing um, of these frontline communities. And then I guess I'd la lastly, I'd, I'd highlight his uh, executive order that created the Civilian Climate Corps, uh, a federal jobs program for, for young people in particular to get involved uh, in, in protecting our communities from climate change, right? It's, there is so, there's so much work that has to be done in, in terms of, uh, you know, creating the resiliency in communities and, and, and cleaning up um, from disasters and things like that. Uh, and, you know, the private sector, you know, really isn't paying for that work. So it, we're really excited. And that's something that we've been pushing for. And it's kind of a recreation of, of the original New Deal uh, program, uh, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps. So we're really excited about that. And we've seen like direct results from our organizing. But of course, you know, with a crisis at this scale, there's there's always so much more to be done. Yeah, and I know you've said a few times that one big focus of the Sunrise Movement is pushing for the Green New Deal to pass Congress. Can you just uh, kind of elaborate a little bit on how you think you see the Green New Deal getting through Congress and if you think it'll make it through in its current form or if it should be or has to be updated before it can pass both the House and the Senate to become law? So first, I'd clarify that the Green New Deal is not one piece of legislation, right? When it was introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey, um, it, it was a, it's a resolution, a 14-page resolution that lays out a framework for what we need to do to address the climate crisis at the scale that it demands. And it's a vision for a 10-year economic society-wide mobilization to, to do just that. And we know that there's no silver bullet to the climate crisis. We know that one piece of legislation isn't going to get it done. It's going to be sustained investment that over this 10-year period 
um, really gets us in a position where we can bring down our emissions to, to zero. Um, so in terms of getting the first few steps of that through Congress, um, what we've seen is that, like I mentioned, President Biden's climate plan has really improved since he was running in the Democratic primary. He, he listened to concerns from the progressive wing of the party from frontline communities and you know, from the, and the, took a lot of the recommendations from the Biden-Bernie Climate Task Force. And he, he improved his plan to include, you know, this 40% of investments going to frontline communities. He put in a uh, 2035 clean electricity standard so that we can get to 100% clean electricity by 2035, which is, you know, a lot faster than he had previously uh committed to he committed to like 2050 which is we know is too late um in terms of it getting passed through congress so what we're going to see is that in the next couple of weeks uh president biden and and leaders in congress are going to introduce a uh, a clean energy infrastructure massive package and and that's we expect that to include a lot of the things in his uh, climate plan from when he ran for president. Uh, so there's there's a lot of support in Congress for lots and lots of investment in infrastructure and and specifically in green infrastructure, zero emissions infrastructure. So there's a big opportunity to do that and also stimulate you know the economy and create millions of of good paying jobs you know which is you know, needed when unemployment is so high right now. Um, there there are going to be it is going to be a tough fight, um, but given the fact that we have an opportunity here where, where Democrats have 50 votes in the Senate and they have a slim majority in the House and there's a Democratic president, there is an opportunity to get things done. Um, so, you know, we'll see what the final version of that package looks like when it's, when it's introduced. Um, but, that's, but it's going to be on the table in the next few weeks. So that's really exciting. So obviously in the House, there's no such thing as like a filibuster to stop uh, potential legislation from passing there. But in the Senate, there's much more of an uphill battle for this legislation to pass, which Republicans have in the past vehemently opposed. Uh, what kind of concessions do you think are acceptable to be able to push the a Biden climate plan, plan through the Senate? So no concessions are, are really acceptable. We want the plan to be as strong as possible. And, but you know, we'll see what happens uh, when they're, they're whipping votes. But with, the, with regard to the filibuster, um, by the, the, the Senate has one more opportunity to this year to get through to get a bill through the recon budget reconciliation process, which lowers the threshold needed from 60 votes to 50 votes, and we expect um, that this green infrastructure bill, this Biden's most of Biden's climate plan, will be going through budget reconciliation, um, and and that means that we don't need 10 Republicans in in order to pass it, and that's a really big deal. That makes it plausible that it will pass. Um, but as we're seeing with the COVID relief bill going through budget reconciliation right now, there is still like disagreement within, within the Democratic caucus and the Senate in particular. Uh, and, and with that, 
you know, there, there needs to be, there needs to be consensus building in, in order for it to get through. Um, the, but the filibuster does have to go. Um, not everything can go through budget reconciliation because there are all these really stupid rules um, that are really there for, for no reason. Um, the filibuster was created by accident, actually. It wasn't you know, the founder's intention to have it. The fa- I mean, the, the Articles of Confederation had, had higher thresholds for passing legislation, which is you know, why we got rid of the Articles of Confederation and, ha- and you know, created the Constitution, where 50, 51 votes in the Senate will pa- is enough to pass bills. So it was created by accident later on. Um, and then once they realized that there was this possibility, um, this, this gap in the rules, um, it, was, it was really a loophole that was exploited just throughout United States history by Southern senators looking first to protect slavery and then later on to protect Jim Crow. So it's, it's an outdated and, and racist rule um, that, that needs to go in order for us to use all the tools at our disposal to fight the climate crisis, to ensure voting rights, um, you know, which are also you know, very important for the climate crisis. Uh, like for example, the House just passed HR1, um, which, which among other things uh, ends partisan gerrymandering. Which, which is a really big deal because we just had the census. And that, and that means that we're about to go through redistricting. And Republicans control the vast majority of state legislatures in this country and fully intend to gerrymander themselves a majority, even while getting a minority of votes. So w- without getting rid of the filibuster, it's going to be impossible to pass that legislation and make it inevitable that Republicans take back control of, of the government while not getting a majority of the votes, um, which will make climate action in the future, you know, over the next 10 years, when we really do need sustained investment, it's going to make it very hard. And, you know, they, they could potentially go backwards, um, roll back the things that we're doing. So all of these things are interconnected. And it's really important to understand that. The United States uh, has been notoriously uh, falling behind and its fight against climate change. The Climate Action Tracker, a group that tracks countries who are signatories of the Paris Climate Accords, has said that the United States is crucially insufficient at addressing climate change. What do you think the United States could do in the meantime, as we're trying to pass legislation to be able to catch up to other large countries like India in terms of addressing the climate crisis. Yeah, so I think you bring up a really good point. Um, and uh, analysts have shown that really no countries are on the path to, to meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is really concerning. Um, you know, we know that the Paris Agreement is not a binding agreement. You know, it sets some good goals, but if peop- if countries aren't doing every th- everything that they can to meet the, the meet the goals that they committed to, uh, then it really doesn't mean that much. Um, so, the United States. I mean, first of all, we do need to pass federal legislation in order to get the scale of investment that we need to be building up this infrastructure that will cr- create the possibility um, for a like completely clean energy economy. Um, but, you know, besides, 
besides federal legislation, you know, we, Biden has a lot of leeway on, on executive orders. Um, he can be mobilizing every single agency in the federal government to take action to make sure that um, you know, their procurement dollars are, are, are going to, to converting uh, different parts of our economy to renewable energy. Um, and, you know, President Biden has also shown that he wants to wants to, like international climate cooperation to be a big focus of his foreign policy, which is encouraging. And he, the fact that he appointed former Secretary of State John Kerry to take on the lead climate foreign policy role in his administration is also encouraging. It shows that he's that he's putting a lot of weight behind that. Um, but you know, John Kerry still has to show that he can get results. Um, so President Biden is committed to, to holding an international climate summit uh, around Earth Day. Um, and, and at that, you know, we'll see if he's able to use the, the, the real power that the United States has in, in the international community to bring other countries along with us uh, in, in committing to more aggressive timelines in terms of getting to, to zero emissions um, in in um and, and moving off of fossil fuels because ultimately that's 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 the name of the game um how quickly the united states and other emitters in the world can get off of fossil fuels and and do so in a way um that that puts people first and puts the burden of paying for this uh not on working people um but but really leveraging the powers of of, of government and um, making sure that the countries that have contributed the most to this crisis, the United States being first among those, um, making sure that we're, we're doing our part to make sure that the, commu the communities, you know, in the countries, particularly in the global south, they're going to get hit first and worst by the climate crisis are in a position um, where, where they're being protected. Go ahead to cap us off. What can our average listener at home, a lot of whom are students and parents of students, what can they do to get involved in climate action groups, both at GW and abroad, to kind of help push this agenda we've been talking about throughout this interview? Yeah, so, I mean, that correctly identifies the best way for people to get involved, because first, I'll just say before I mention some of the, the best groups that there are to get involved with, you know, the, the fossil fuel industry has really looked to shift the blame of the, cri the climate crisis onto individuals uh, in order to avoid responsibility for the crisis that they caused. You know, just 100 companies have been responsible for over 70% of global emissions. Um, but they want you to think that, you know, that recycling more and, and reducing your own personal uh, carbon footprint, you know, which are fine and, go and good things to do, um, are the, the real culprits uh, in the climate crisis, which is just not the case. So it's really important for people to uh, get involved in trying to change things at a larger scale than just in our own individual lives. Um, and, and to do that at GW in particular, I, I mean, first of all, of course, please join Sunrise GW. Um, you know, we're first, we're, all, we're fighting the influence of the fossil fuel industry on campus, and but then also in the coming weeks and months ahead, we're going to, you know, given our position in DC for those who are here, but also for those who are not here, we're really going to try to leverage that um, in order to make some sort of impact 
on the upcoming fight over the federal climate legislation. Um, but at GW, it also mentioned um, Black Defiance Green. They've been doing a lot of great work in terms of educating the GW community on environmental justice and making sure that we protect frontline communities and things like that. Um, and I'd also, you know, mention that Take Back the Tap GW has been doing great work to get GW to phase out single-use plastics. Um, there are a lot of really great groups that are that are doing environmental work um, at GW, and there are so many different ways to get involved. And then lastly, I'd just say, call your senator about abolishing the filibuster. That's ultimately the only way that we are going to have a chance um, to pass the, the type of legislation that'll, that will allow us to continue climate action throughout this really crucial decade. All right, well, thank you very much. That was Jeremy Whiskers, senior at GW and co-founder of the Sunrise chapter here. Thank you once again for joining us and answering our questions. Thank you. Joining us now is Frank Masano, a partner that leads the strategic communications practice in Bracewell's Policy Resolution Group. Professor Masano focuses his communicative abilities on energy and environmental issues. When not working with international clients, Professor Masano is an adjunct professor at the George Washington University in the SMPA program. Professor Masano, thank you very much for joining us today. Happy to be here, Kyle. Thanks for having me. All right. So as you know, we've just transferred into a new administration away from Donald Trump and into Joe Biden's presidency. And with it comes a whole bunch of policy questions. And today, uh, with your background and expertise, we wanted to focus a bit on climate change. As we went over in your bio, you are a consultant at uh, Bricewell, a group that just does media consulting for a uh, variety of clients. We're actually much bigger than that, Kyle. We um, we have lobbyists and we have lawyers that work with us too. Um, and we're so we're getting into lots of messaging issues on my side and media relations. At the same time, we have policy experts who are working on Capitol Hill with members of Congress, with the administration, with EPA, uh, with the Department of Energy, places like that, and with states, et cetera. Um, who are, you know, digging into the policy details and the prescriptions that are going to address climate change. At the same time, we have a full service law firm, too, that has real uh, substantive, legal, and in this case, you have to kind of be a legal and a policy expert where, because uh, you're working on uh, regulatory issues, you're working on permits, you're working on uh, policies that EPA are uh, imposing on uh, regulatory burdens on uh, on industries or renewable industries, et cetera. So um, we're all working together and pushing in the same direction, in a sense, uh, to make this a kind of a well-rounded package of uh, of, uh, of experts who can talk about these issues in detail. And, and obviously, in your work, you talk with a large number of clients from the oil industry to right. just energy companies to renewable energy. Obviously, Biden signaled a huge policy shift in towards renewable energy and climate change. Uh, have you seen any kind of major change in how these companies are acting and behaving and interacting with the administration since the new administration has come into office? Well, you know, it's really interesting, Kyle. I think we certainly have seen a change. There's no doubt about that. We've seen a change in how companies um, are preparing themselves for a new administration and the challenges of dealing with the new administration, whether they're supportive or not, right? At the same time, we've seen a market shift, right? We've seen 
um, the oil and gas industry, we've seen the renewable industry in many cases work together, right? And parts of the oil industry adopting parts of the renewable industry as part of their approach to dealing with long-term approach, long-term uh, policy issues related to climate change. So, you know, when you see a Total or uh, an oil company or, or uh, a, uh, like the Norwe Norwegian oil company, which we represent, uh, Equinor, who is uh, also one of the largest offshore wind developers in the world and certainly engaged in the Northeast here in New York and off the coast of Massachusetts. You know, you really see kind of a convergence of the types of uh, of energy issues that are affecting the entire sector, right? So they're coming together. They're, they're certainly trying to improve their processes and their efficiencies in the fossil fuel side. At the same time, um, they're investing in new projects that are renewables uh, that are really becoming part of the entire uh, suite of things that they do to create and pr uh, provide energy for consumers. So really that's where things are headed, right? Um, you know, in the same space, you have lots of natural gas companies who for years have been allowing us to produce power at a cleaner uh, rate. Now it's still a fossil fuel, right? And uh, some environmentalists want to get rid of that altogether. Um, but the transition that we're going through right now is going to be really interesting. And um, the Biden administration is certainly headed in a different direction than the Trump administration did. But it's really not that different from where the, the Obama administration was 10 years ago. Right. So we've seen this movie before and industry has adapted to it. And I think they will adapt to it again uh, as they already are. So one of the biggest uh, moves so far in Biden's administration with regards to climate change actually happened on day one. Obviously, we saw him commit to re-entering the United States into the Paris Climate Accords. And then on that same day, through executive order, revocable federal land grants for the Keystone XL oil pipeline, which had an effect on thousands of jobs in uh, the United States. So how do you foresee the energy sector reacting to Biden's uh, kind of initiatives? And how do you think they can prepare to support the energy sector as some of these oil and natural gas jobs are being phased out? For sure, Kyle, great question. I mean, look, this is a, a two-parter, really. Um, first, the Paris Agreement is um, something that I think a lot of people found common ground on, right? Um, businesses and industry were already engaged in that process. In fact, most of my clients, uh, almost nearly all of my clients in the oil and gas space and the Chamber of Commerce and others like that, trade associations, they were strongly advocating the Trump administration stay in the Paris Agreement, partly because when you have a seat at the table, you can influence the debate. And what the, what the Trump administration move uh, did was just take us out of that realm, right? So now we were no longer even a factor uh, we were just kind of disregarded, and, and and that was his that was his mentality towards this thing. We're going to be America first, and we're not going to care about what the rest of the world is doing. Now, I don't think that was the right approach. M multiple businesses who are global, who on a global scale, are working across uh, across the energy sectors, thought that was a bad idea. Um, you know, no matter what the policy turns out to be, right? So, um, so the reality is, uh, on Paris, I think you're going to see a lot of agreement. You're going to see a lot of movement toward that process and get to get back engaged in that process. Where it ends up, I think, is going to be a point of contention. But but the the, the process of reengaging it is exactly what we needed to do all along, and I think you'll find common ground there. On the other piece of this, the Keystone Pipeline, 
it's a real challenge for this administration, okay? This administration came into office with two significant interest groups promoting it, right? Uh, the progressives uh, and the folks who, who are in the progressive line and environmentalists fit into that category along with many of the activists who, who, who opposed a lot of these pipelines throughout the country uh, over the years. Um, they were one group that was really energized and activated, right? At the same time, one of the reasons Trump won in 2016 was because white, uh, blue-collar unions, mostly white male workers, rejected uh, the 2016 candidate Hillary Clinton and chose Trump because a lot of his America First type of approach, right? Um, and his anti-trade deals and things like that. Those were union issues that they supported. So one of the reasons Biden was able to cut into Trump in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan and, uh, and Wisconsin in the Rust Belt there where there are heavy union jobs was because of his history and his support from unions and, uh, and the workers in those unions, um, which Hillary Clinton just did not get. So, so there's really a push-pull right there between those things. And, and that was exemplified by the Keystone decision especially, but also some of the other decisions that we've seen since then, which are um, you know, impacting oil and gas jobs uh, and revenue across, uh, in, in, across the country, but certainly in, in heavier oil and gas states like Texas and like New Mexico and like Louisiana, where, where those jobs are really important to the economy, to schools, to things like that. So that push and pull is really uh, gonna be a theme I think we'll see over the two, first two years at least of the Biden administration. Right now in the early stages, the progressives are kind of winning the day but, um, you know, really a key factor. I mean, in fact, he's probably the most powerful Joe in Washington, D.C. today. And that's Joe Manchin, right? The senator from West Virginia, who is an energy user state that has been a supporter. He's the chairman of the Energy Committee. He's been influential uh, in, in this 50-50 Senate. He's going to be really a, a powerful voice um, to kind of dictate where the Senate goes. And I think you know, he, he's going to lean more towards those union guys as we get into the heavier policy fights. So early on, the administration was able to do things that, that the administration could do by executive order. The Keystone Pipeline was one example because it was a very easy fix and one that the Trump administration just did the opposite of when they came into office, right, from where the Obama administration was because it crosses, it needs a federal permit to cross the, the border from Canada. So, um, you know, so... It's a challenge, and it's going to continue to be a challenge for this administration. The energy industry, meanwhile, is, is, is going to be alongside a lot of those union guys who are, frankly, getting good-paying jobs. And you know, too, that it's a big issue when Jennifer Granholm, in her first three or four speeches since becoming energy secretary and all throughout her uh, process of, uh, of nomination, was, you know, I mean, every other word she cited was clean, green jobs, clean, green jobs, right? So um, you know that they know this is a big issue. You know that they are going to work hard to try and bring those union guys into the fold as much as they can. Um, and it's going to be a, a push and pull, and we'll see where it ends up. In the end, I, I really feel like they'll be able to find a middle ground with progressives. Uh, that's going to bring some Republican support along with it. Um, uh, uh, I mean, unions, um, that's going to bring some Republican support along with it. I think more and more disappointed are going to be progressives as we move further down the road when the fights get tougher. And I think that's why he was so strong early on uh, in pushing progressive move, uh, moves.
So you brought up kind of the transitioning from oil to uh, wind and solar energy. Obviously, we've seen in some states like Texas, my home state of Ohio, and next door in Pennsylvania that have had a lot of success transferring from oil and natural gas jobs and fracking and mills and such uh, over to wind and solar jobs. Do you think that the success that these states are seeing is going to be replicable for the whole industry to continue moving towards renewable energy? Well, it's, it, you know, it's not a matter of whether people do it um, and, and, and how they do it. It's a matter of how fast uh, things like that can happen. And you mentioned Texas as an example. Texas is still a huge oil and gas state, right? Most of their, uh, most of their uh, development is done on private land though, right? So the, the moves that the administration did early on had little impact on Texas. Um, the, you know, in fact, the Texas oil industry was slowed down more by the cold weather than it was slowed down by anything the administration was going to do. So I certainly think that um, the administration uh, it, it, that is going to have an impact. But the reality is um, to, uh, oil and gas jobs are prominent. They're powerful. They, they pay good wages. And people are going to continue to go into that line of work and continue. Now, that's no slight against renewables, right? There are a lot of opportunities in the renewable space. There's a lot of opportunities to create new uh, innovative technologies like hydrogen, um, and, and there will be jobs that, that fit that mold too. Um, and there's no reason why they can't move together in concert in places like we've seen in Ohio and Pennsylvania, right? Uh, the, the, you know, the oil and gas industry is still pretty strong in Pennsylvania. The refining industry is, is powerful in Pennsylvania, but they are building new uh, uh, new wind turbines there. They are creating opportunities for uh, manufacturing and things like that. Um, you know, so if you look at a state like Iowa, where you you see manufacturing jobs creating clean energy, you see clean energy um, in wind turbines and uh, things like that. At the same time, you see other issues. So you know, we're really in a in a good place. I think the the, the problem is how soon we can get there, and that's where the disagreement is between um, you know experts like me between. Uh, a lot of policy people between some Republicans and a lot of progressives who want to go faster, 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 and think we have to get there tomorrow. And I, you know, again, I don't, don't, I don't think we can get there tomorrow um, in 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 the vein that the the progressives want us to, and environmentalists want us to move. Um, we will keep moving in that direction, but it takes time. Uh, look, I'll just give you one example, Kyle. Um, I worked on wind turbine projects since 2005, right? Uh, and, and so when we were building wind turbine plate projects in places where they hadn't had them before, it just always took longer for us to get them done than we thought they would take because of the first time mover problem you have when you're doing things for the first time. It's just hard, right? Supply chains and, uh, and standing up all the transportation issues that you need and, and, and meeting the regulatory burdens that you need to meet um, in, in states. So. You know, it's just harder and takes longer. And that's not something that um, a lot of activists often worry about, right? Um, that's what we in the, in the energy industry have to worry about every minute of every day. And that's why we're a little bit more serious about how we, uh, uh, the timeline and, and, and that it fits better so that it'll allow us to do the uh, things that we can do to create new innovative opportunities, but at the same time, produce the power, produce the gasoline, produce the natural gas that the customers demand. Yeah, so you brought up, uh, kind of in passing there, the uh, cold snap in Texas. Now, obviously, the messaging from a lot of prominent officials in Texas had 
pinned the blame for what happened there on renewables and the Green New Deal, which of course is not a piece of legislation that has passed or had any real policy effect in the state of Texas. Uh, from your position as a media consultant, how do you think the administration can kind of combat against that kind of negative messaging to make wind power, solar power, and the overall prospect of renewables more appealing to the American people? Well, you know, it's, uh, look, the, 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 the crisis in Texas was a new, interesting thing that had, but I mean, those things have happened before, right? But um, we also, we saw it happen in California this summer, right? When they had a heat wave and we had similar failures in the power system. So there are a lot of challenges that we deal with, right? And what doesn't help is a political partisan morass that gets in the way of actually trying to get power to customers, right? And that's what we saw a little bit from both sides, frankly, in the early stages of the Texas debate. We saw it also um, heavily promoted by the Trump administration during the California blackouts, right? I mean, you may recall back in August of last year, while we were all still at home uh, because of COVID, you know, the, there were blackouts in California and the Trump administration was going there saying, if you want to have California power and blackouts, then go ahead and vote for Democrats, right? So using that type of approach is not helpful because it's a much more complex, uh, complicated problem than that, right? And I'll just cite one issue with, with Texas that's really interesting, right? Texas is always going to have a discussion over whether they should weatherize their facilities, right? They just, in Houston, San Antonio, places like that, they just don't face enough cold weather for, uh, for uh, you know, the utilities to spend that much money and put it into the rate base on customers to have to winterize all those facilities which were impacted, right? Now, take Dallas, for example. They get a lot more cold weather. The utility there, which is a client of ours, already invested heavily in winterization because they get more cold weather there, right? And, uh, you know, when, when, the, when the power went off on Monday and Tuesday of that, of that week in February, uh, the, the, the utility in Texas and Dallas was pro normally provides about 18% of the power for the entire state of Texas. They went up over 30% for the amount of power they were providing. And they only lost, you know, 5% of their, of their actual generation assets um, because of the cold weather. And that, that was due to frozen coal or that was due to frozen pipes or a couple of frozen wind turbines, right? So for the most part, they performed because their facilities were winterized because it's, a, it, you know, Dallas gets colder weather than Houston or San Antonio. And so that's the kind of complicated mix that issues are facing with grid reliability and grid management um, and resilience that a lot of times, and it's just one small example of five or six, right, that, uh, that, that, that underscore why we don't need politics in the way of addressing these very challenging issues. And you can broaden that out, not just to Texas, but to nationwide, when you start thinking about transmission and grid uh, development across the country and how you can produce a better, smarter, more resilient grid so that states can be more reliable and add more intermittent sources like wind and you know have battery backup or have more natural gas or things like that that can support that that add of renewables. So certainly, you know, Texas with 25% renewables uh, in its fleet, um, it has been a, a sterling example 
Um, and on that one day, it was that it, it made it a challenge, right? But those are things that we can deal with and address in 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 the process of you know grid management and and providing better transmission systems and more resilience. But those things aren't resolved by political sniping, and that's what we saw a lot when that happened, right? And so um, you know, I always like to say, hey, let's forget about that political sniping and let's get down to business and uh, and how we're going to do this and how we're going to solve these challenges. And I think you're going to start to see that happen now um, as you start to, it never happens immediately in the crisis as the crisis is happening. It certainly is going to happen in the aftermath and, and trying to decide what's a better way to go forward, whether you're California, whether you're uh, hitting by, hit by storms in Iowa or Ohio, or whether you're, uh, you're, you're stuck in Texas with cold weather. Yeah. So do you foresee a time during the Biden presidency where the two parties can overcome those politics and, as you said, get down to business and actually make meaningful changes in the climate change space, in the environment, and with clean energy. Oh, yeah, I for sure do, Kyle. I mean, really. Um, and you know what? We've already done it um, while the Trump administration was in office at the end of the Trump administration. At the end of the Trump administration, when they were trying to pass that last budget, um, the other thing that moved along with the COVID package and the budget was the largest energy bill we've seen since 2005, 2007, maybe. Um, and certainly the most heavily oriented climate change bill that Congress perhaps has ever passed, right? There was one provision in that bill which phased out HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, which is a chemical that's used in air conditioning and refrigeration. And there was an, there's an international treaty that the U.S. was party to, but never signed during the Trump administration. Um, and there was legislation that both Republicans and Democrats overwhelmingly supported and put into that package. And it's going to reduce temperatures by 0.5 degrees. And when you're trying to reduce from 2 to, to 1.5 degrees globally, that's a big deal. Right. So so stuff like that was in there. There were lots of funding for uh, transmission and storage. There was lots of funding for carbon capture programs and things like that. It was a big, huge win for um, everybody in the energy space, no matter where what side you run. That happened on December 29th of the Trump administration. Right. So it really is a perfect example of how you can work together in, in a bipartisan fashion to develop some sort of program now. Where are we uh, as we go forward? That's a that builds a down payment on what we do, right? Um, and, a, and, a, and a roadmap for how to get there, right? And so, um, what do we do now? Uh, we are starting to see it already. There's a clean energy standard legislation that was introduced by uh, a Republican and a Democrat, David McKinley from West Virginia and Kurt Schrader from Ohio, from Oregon. They are. Uh, they proposed uh, an innovate and then back it up with regulations, a clean energy standard uh, first over a time period. Just yesterday, in fact, or, or Tuesday, I should say, um, so the chairman of the, of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, Frank Pallone, and his subcommittee chairman, Diana DeGette, and Paul Tonko proposed another form of a clean energy standard that could be um, part of this discussion. So I think what we're seeing is the rational policy discussion beginning, right? Versus for so long, we've talked about carbon taxes, right? And carbon taxes being a vehicle to do this. Well, nobody supports carbon taxes, except for lots of companies who, uh, who, you know, who, who, who see it as an easier way to deal with this issue and lots of 
think tank people who like to, you know, again, see it as an easier way to deal with this issue. But politically, it's it's trouble, right? It always is trouble. And we've seen that in 1994 when the Clinton administration tried to move and Congress moved to BTU tax. We saw it in 2010 when um, the Democratic Congress and Senate tried to pass a cap and trade bill. All those things faced political firestorms uh, eventually and voters uh, had their say. And so the, the, the historical pr perspective that uh, we have from understanding where a carbon tax is makes it very difficult for a carbon tax to move politically. So what I think the, the moves by these members of Congress is setting the bar to say, hey, look, we have a mechanism that can work, that can draw stakeholder support, that can draw bipartisan support. We may not necessarily particularly agree on every detail as we go forward, but the mechanism as a clean energy standard is a place where we all can participate, right? Where we can all push and pull and try and get a deal out of that. So I'm very positive about where Congress can go, um, both Republicans and Democrats. I don't know where it will end up, but the, the, the fact that we're talking about uh, a clean energy standard versus the Green New Deal or versus a carbon tax probably means that we're headed in the right direction. Yeah, and right at the end there, you brought up the Green New Deal, and that's actually what I want to end our interview on today, is that Green New Deal obviously popped up as a whole bunch of progressives got into Congress in 2018 and started pushing this legislation. Do you foresee any world where this administration and this Congress can negotiate on a Green New Deal and pass it by the time Joe Biden's out of office? And from your experience in the sector, what is kind of the talk in the background from energy companies? Are they worried about the legislation, looking forward to it? What has that kind of been like? Yeah, so, I mean, I look, I think a Green New Deal is, a, is dead letter office in reality, right? Look, the Green New Deal is every progressive issue slammed into one thing and centered around the environment and calling it the Green New Deal. Now, that, that's a, a progressive wish list that's never gonna happen unless they took over the Congress, which they will never do, right? Because um, the the country is a center right country, and uh, you know we've saw we've seen even in the face of the uh, of John Donald Trump being rejected, we've seen um, Republicans actually winning seats, right? Like Susan Collins and others, and um, you know we we've seen them actually close the gap in the House to make it more narrow um, while while the president was being defeated by 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 uh, by uh, Vice President Biden, now President Biden. So, um, you know, it's hard to say that a Green New Deal will ever uh, be uh, in whole of the direction the country is headed. Now, the reality is that will be a, a starting point for many of the progressives when they discuss where they want to go with climate change, where they want to go with equity, where they want to go with all these other issues that are, are part of their approach, right? And it certainly means that uh, uh, it certainly will be a significant part of the discussion that we have. But there are lots of moderates, Joe Biden and uh, Joe Manchin, um, uh, you know, Abigail Spanberger in the House is a, as an example, Elise Slotkin, a Michigan congresswoman in the House, as a good example. Tim Ryan is another good example of that in Ohio, who is probably going to run for that Senate seat that's opened by, by Rob Portman in Ohio and a good friend of mine. Um, so, you know, I look, I, I do think that um, it's part of the debate. It's interesting and it's always going to be uh, a fascinating discussion. But it is just that it's in theory what progressives a progressive wish list, and that just usually means 
that it's probably not going to be anything towards reality. Now, does it, what does industry do? Industry is focused on producing uh, a cleaner and greener uh, product. It's producing a product that they can meet uh, customer demand on. Those are important issues, right? That they, that they can provide jobs for people on, that they can uh, meet customers' demands in terms of price and things like that so it's affordable. We need reliable and affordable energy constantly. And, um, you know, what's going to get us over that hump to keep our energy reliable and affordable and make it cleaner and greener is going to be innovation and new technologies like hydrogen and other things like that that can help change the way we use energy, right? That's the solution. It's not a quick fix. It's, it's, it's a long-term solution. I've been involved in these issues since the late 90s, probably before many of you guys were born. So, you know, it's, it's the historical perspective we have and seeing how far we've come already tells me that we can we can make it and we will do it in a way that is uh, that that still allows us to have cost effective and reliable power but makes it cleaner and greener and makes it more innovative than ever before all righty that's a good positive note to end on I want to thank you again for coming on to our show and being subject to our interview today I think a lot of uh, our listeners will find what you have to say very insightful so thanks again for coming for on. sure always happy to do it and you know again I love uh, talking to the GW students and those in my class. It's, I've, I've been teaching there for over 10 years now, and I love every minute of it. It's the same class, but it's different every semester. So I really enjoy it. And uh, I I'm, I'm have gotten to know lots of great students who, uh, over the years, who now are you know in the workplace and they still stay in touch. So I hope everyone will, and I hope everyone takes my class because I think it's a fun class that they'll enjoy. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kyle. Well, that wraps up this episode of Capital Crosstalk. Thank you again to Jeremy and Professor Masano for joining us and providing their perspectives on climate change policy today. If you want to hear our full-length interview, be sure to check out our podcast. Just search Capital Crosstalk wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our social media at GW Capital Crossfire on Instagram and at GWTV Crossfire on Twitter to keep up with all things Capital Crossfire. Thank you once again for joining us and we'll see you next time.